Uh, we're going to do a couple of things today. Uh, first thing we need to do, we need to finish up photosynthesis. We're dangerously close to finishing it up anyway, right? So uh, we only got uh, a few more little snippets of information that we need to, to get through. One really important concept that we still need to finish up, we didn't actually make glucose yet, right? All we did was kind of convert sunlight energy into chemical bond energy. Now we actually have to take that chemical bond energy that we made and invest it into a glucose molecule, all right? So uh, we still just need to kind of build the thing once again. That won't take us very long at all, okay? Um, after we finish up photosynthesis, then we're going to move on to something that is sort of out of sorts with what your syllabus tells you. Um, uh, we, this week in the lab, we are doing meiosis, okay? The, the, the process of making gametes, eggs and sperm, okay? Um, out of cells in your body, all right? Um, and so I would think in order to have us not go into that completely cold, right, that I probably should talk about it before lab. Eh, I guess, right? Uh, so today, instead of going on to the cell cycle, we're going to take cell cycle and we're going to kind of postpone it by about a week and a half. Okay, um, and we're going to jump right to, right to meiosis. So um, the same chapter that's listed under meiosis in your, in your syllabus, I think it's 13 or 14, I'm not sure which one it is, right? Um, we're just going to bring that and we're just going to bump it up uh, a couple of days uh, to today. Um, so today we'll talk about, we'll finish photosynthesis, we'll talk about meiosis. We might get done with meiosis, depending on how it goes. Things tend to go pretty quickly in this section, believe it or not. Um, uh, and then on Wednesday, we'll probably talk about the cell cycle a little bit more and maybe talk a little bit about Mendelian genetics, passing characters and traits on to the next generation and things like that. Okay. Uh, a week or two after that, we'll get back to where we're supposed to be and we'll get into the cell cycle in the strict sense and DNA transcription and translation and things like that. All right. So we're almost, almost done right, with this really nitty-gritty biochemistry stuff, okay? We're getting dangerously close to looking at entire organisms as they exist in nature, but not quite yet, right? But we're, we're kind of heading in that direction. So if you're getting kind of tired of biochemistry, stay tuned for seven more slides, right? And then we can move on to some completely different things. We're going to do an abrupt left turn, okay, and start talking about making eggs and sperm, which is going to be in pretty stark contrast to photosynthesis, okay? So... I'll try to come up with some innovative way to tie them together, or maybe I just won't, right? Then we'll just, uh, something completely different, all right? Uh, sound good? Okay, so I'm going to have to monkey around a little bit with the syllabus uh, to, to kind of fit us into where we're supposed to be. So probably sometime this week, I usually do this about this time of the year, I'll kind of revamp the syllabus for the rest of the year. There are about five or six weeks left, um, and I'll post a revised last six weeks of class. Um, the exam date is going to stay the same, right? I'm never going to change exam dates, but I might move around the content a little bit in the next couple of weeks. But for you, I mean, you're not reading three chapters ahead, are you? You probably didn't read the... <laughs> so, you got all the reading done for the rest of the semester, right? So um, this is no real big, you know, shift for you, right? So um, we'll just kind of move some things around, but uh, be prepared for meiosis here in about 15 minutes, all right? Uh, okay, so this, I think, is one of the last slides we were looking at, the cartoon version, right, of what happens to this electron, right, that we ultimately stripped off of this water molecule and are ascending down through this, uh, this series of energetic pathways, okay? We recall uh, where we got this electron from, right? We recall out loud where we got this electron from. To me, you recall to me, vocally, right, where this electron ultimately originates from. Where do we get that electron from? The sun. Not the sun. We add, we add photons of energy to the electron, right, but where do we actually get the electron itself? What goes into the photosynthetic equation? Remember that? not from carbon dioxide, it's from water. the water, right? That very first stage of photosynthesis, we take that water molecule and we break it apart to get the electron out. And that's where we release the oxygen from. That's where the oxygen that plants are releasing originates from, right? It comes out of that water molecule that is split apart, right? Those hydrogen ions, we're going to hang on to those, right? If we can hang on to those hydrogen ions from that water molecule, then we can build up this hydrogen ion concentration, which we can then release through our ATP synthase to turn the crank to make ATP, right? So we're going to split that water molecule apart, grab the electron and do interesting things with it, release the oxygen because we're done with it, 
right? Um, and then retain those hydrogen ions inside of that thylakoid to build up our hydrogen ion concentration. So we got a couple of things going on here at once, and I realized that, which is what makes photosynthesis weird. There's a couple of different things going on at the same time. That's okay, though. It's college, so you can retain all that, right? So here's our electron that we pulled off of the water molecule, kind of low energy, not a lot of energy there that we can actually use. So we want to energize that. So now we hit it with some photons, right, from the sun and bring it up to a higher energy level. We roll that electron down an electron transfer chain, pull some of the energy back out of it, right, and use that energy to build up our hydrogen ion concentration even more in the thylakoid. Right, so that hydrogen ion concentration in the thylakoid is coming from both splitting that water molecule apart, okay, which is releasing hydrogen into the thylakoid, and from the electron transfer chain, which is bringing hydrogen into the thylakoid. And that electron transfer chain in photosynthesis works the exact same way as the one in the mitochondria, right, where we pass that electron down the chain. Each enzyme that grabs that electron pulls some energy out of it, moves that electron or moves that hydrogen ion across that membrane and passes it down the line. Right, if you recall that little performance art demonstration that we did in the front of the class, okay? So we're building up a big hydrogen ion concentration inside the thylakoid with the hydrogen coming from a couple of different places, right? And that's ultimately what's going to be producing the ATP, okay? Um, just like it does in the mitochondria, all right? Uh, we've spent the energy from our electron, so we have to hit it again, right? Using photosystem one, which happens second, for a variety of stupid reasons, right? Um, so photosystem two happens for photosystem one, right? Um, we hit it again, we re-energize that electron and we put it off into our NADPH electron carrying bucket where we carry it over to the dark reactions, to the dark side of the force, so to speak, okay? So to summarize those light reactions, right? All the things that happen during the daytime when the sun is out, this is the non-cartoony version. Well, it's cartoony, but it's still complex. Right, here we have our water molecule. We split it apart at photosystem two, right? Um, and we hit it with an electron. We pull, the, or we hit it with a photon. We pull that electron off. We retain the hydrogen ions from that water molecule inside of the thylakoid here. We get that high energy electron and we roll it down the electron transfer chain and bring in even more hydrogen. So we're building up a lot of hydrogen ions in here, right? Then we hit it with another photon Okay, and then we'd pass it off onto NADPH. From building up this big hydrogen ion concentration on the inside of the thylakoid, that's where we can fuel ATP synthesis. Okay, so we can take that eight, all of those hydrogen ions, we can let them go, we can let them diffuse out of that thylakoid after we build up that gradient. They're going to diffuse out through the ATP synthase, which is going to spin around and attach phosphate functional groups to ADP, giving us a lot of ATP. So the energized electrons that are being carried by NADPH and the chemical bond energy in the ATP molecule are going to go over to the dark reactions or what we call the Calvin cycle. Okay? So these are the light reactions summed up, right, all, all at once. So the only trick about it is, Kelly, there's two things going on at once, right? There's what we're doing with the electron up here, and there's this business with the hydrogen ion gradient and making ATP down here. So what's going on up here, right, is related to what's going on down here, but they're doing two different things, right? Everything up here is about making NADPH. Everything down here, right, is about making ATP. And some of the things that happen up here are related to some of the things that are going on down here, right? But keeping both of those things going on at the same time and keeping them straight in your head is going to be the trick. But a lot of biology 101 students think that this process right here is the most complex part of all of biology 101, which means cognitively and intellectually, we're at the peak, right? Which means that it should be kind of all downhill from here, right? A lot of students will say this aspect of the light reactions of photosynthesis is the most difficult thing for them to grasp in 101, right? So if you can grab that, don't get lazy, but you know, eh, we're gonna get more organismal from here on out and it's gonna be a little more in tune with what you can understand in your, your sense of awareness of. All right, so the Calvin cycle, these dark reactions that can happen 24 hours a day. Well, they can happen 24 hours a day. It doesn't necessarily mean that they do. It can happen as long as there is NADPH, ATP, and carbon dioxide to keep the process going. It, but it's called the dark reactions as it requires no sunlight 
whatsoever, okay? So as long as there is the energy molecules and the raw materials, carbon dioxide, to keep the process going, it can go on for as long as it wants to with no bearing on whether it's light outside or not, okay? So these light-independent reactions, or quote-unquote the dark reactions, as we sometimes call them, or we sometimes call it the Calvin cycle, and we sometimes call it the Calvin-Benson cycle, depending on which version of the textbook you use. It's the synthesis part of photosynthesis, okay? That's where we actually make stuff, okay, is in those dark reactions. Uh, they can happen 24 hours a day if raw materials are available, like I mentioned earlier. They happen out in the stroma, okay? So it doesn't happen inside of that thylakoid. It happens inside the chloroplast, but outside of that thylakoid, okay? So that ATP and that NADPH is made in the chloroplast, but it's made outside of those thylakoid membranes. Okay, so it happens kind of in the chloroplast, but outside of the, of the thylakoids, right? And it's referred to as the Calvin-Benson cycle, obviously named after the individuals who first described it completely and accurately. Okay. So call them what you want, right? Call it the Calvin cycle, call it the Calvin-Benson cycle, call it the dark reactions, call them light independent reactions, either one. They're all the same thing. Any questions about that? Can I call it the Benson cycle? I've never heard that before, right? That would be a stretch. They, they would get points off for the Benson cycle. Calvin cycle, though. I guess. I've, I've never heard it called the Benson cycle before, but it's called everything but, isn't yeah. it? All right. Uh, so this is it, right? It's a cycle, just like the, just like the Krebs cycle. It goes around in a circle, right? Um, which means what we end with okay, um, has to be what we start with, okay? So part of these reactions you can see is actually geared towards making glucose, and the other half of it is geared towards replenishing the amount of thing, the stuff that you have to start with to get the reaction going in the first place. So what you need, right, you need six molecules of carbon dioxide, and you need RUBP, okay? Um, six carbon dioxide, so each one of these little brown circles here is representing an atom of carbon, right? RUBP is a five carbon molecule, okay? So as you can probably imagine what we're gonna do, we're gonna take each one of these six carbon dioxides and we're gonna attach them onto these, one of them on each of these six RUBPs, right? The molecule that does that, okay, is called Rubisco, R-U-B-I-S-C-O. Very dangerously close to Nabisco, right? Which is something different. All right, um, Rubisco. Um, a lot of um, agricultural research is currently going towards trying to get Rubisco to act as efficiently as possible, okay? Um, there are some, uh, some numbers that have been crunched, right, in the scientific community that shows that the amount of primary productivity on the earth as a whole, right, is directly related to how much Rubisco there is on the earth as a whole. Right, um, which pretty much tells you, if you want to think about how many different kinds of, how much primary productivity there is, Rubisco is it, right? It's the thing that's actually attaching carbon dioxide from the atmosphere onto an organic molecule that you're going to make sugar out of, right? Um, it's currently speculated that it might actually be the most abundant enzyme on Earth today as well, right? There might, if you look at all the enzymes, Rubisco might be the most abundant thing out there, right? It's everything that is photosynthetic right, um, is teeming with Rubisco, okay, making the glucose molecule. So you can't, under, you, can, you can't overstate the importance of Rubisco, right? If Rubisco globally stops working, then all photosynthesis stops and it's all over very shortly thereafter, right? So um, it, it's common, it's abundant, it's everywhere and it's important. So trying to get it to operate more efficiently, right, Rubisco, or at a, at a faster rate, if you can do that, then, you know, global hunger problems are solved, right? Everything is going to grow really, really fast. The amount of carbon in the atmosphere is going to go down. Global warming is going to end, right? All of this other stuff, right, or is going to, beneficial stuff, presumably, is going to result from Rubisco getting more efficient, right? So it's, it's a pretty interesting molecule right here. It's actually huge, too. If you look at the actual enzyme, it's, it's pretty big, completely well-known, right? The, the amino acid sequence is completely known for Rubisco. Right, those really big uh, important enzymes, like where we know every amino acid in the entire sequence of the thing that's 13,000 bases long, you know. Um, some of these things get more research than others, and Rubisco is, gets a lot. It's a lot. All right, so, um, and when we go through this cycle, you can already see some things that you recognize from the Krebs cycle, right? Um, BPA, PGA, PGAL, we did that in glycolysis. When we took the glucose molecule apart, we made this, right? So, um, Glycolysis is kind of going 
in this direction, right? We're going to take that same series of reactions, but we're going to push them in <coughs> this direction, okay? So if we take this reaction and push it in this direction, energy comes out, right? If we're going to take these reactions and push them in this direction, then the energy is going to have to go in, which it does, okay? So here we have 6CO2 plus 6 Rubisco, Rubisco or RUBP, sorry. RUBP has five carbon, so there's how many carbon right here in these six things? Who's taking the remedial math class? Five times, uh, five times six equals 30, right? So these 30 carbons plus these six carbons equals, it's addition, humor me, 36, right? 36 atoms of carbon, right? This is important. I want to show you that we end up with mass balance and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so what, that happens as soon as we attach these carbon dioxides to the RUBP, the whole thing becomes unbelievably unstable and it breaks in half. Each one of those new six carbon molecules break in half. So we end up with 12 PGA, okay? 12 times three is 36, okay? We then take these 36 PGA, add a bunch of energy to them from ATP, add our 12 uh, NADPH, our 12 electrons, we're gonna add to them. Okay, so this is chemical bond energy we're actually adding here with the ATP. Here's the 12 NADPH. So we have start 12 of these, so we need 12 of these, and we need 12 of these, and we make PGAL. From those 12 PGAL, we can make one molecule of glucose. One. Okay, so here's 36 molecules of, of carbon right here. Here's six. Okay, so what we're left with after that are 10 PGALs. We just took two of these and made glucose out of it. These other 10, we're going to need to replenish our supply of Rubisco. All right, so here we have 30 carbon left. We have to add six more ATP to that in order to replenish our RUBP, right? Once we do that, then we can add six more carbon dioxide to it, right, and start the whole cycle over again. So how many atoms of carbon does it take to make one molecule of glucose? 36. How much ATP? To make one molecule of glucose, 12, right? How many NADPH? 12, right? So, and that's gonna make us one molecule of glucose. Then we have to take those other 30 carbons and six more ATP to keep the cycle going. This is nothing about making glucose here, right? This is just keeping Calvin Benson's cycle cycling, okay? So from the look of it, how efficient is this process? It's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe, right? More resources and almost as much energy is used to actually keep the, the, the thing going around as it does uh, actually making the glucose. So think about riding your bike, right? You have, to, you have to crank the pedals in order to ride your bike. So nothing really, I mean, the, the point of, of riding your bike is the downstroke. It's not the upstroke, right? When you're going to propel yourself, you're, you push down on the pedal and you go, right? So let's say uh, you spend 10%, it, it takes 15% of the energy and resources to push the pedal down and 80% of the resources to pull the pedal back up again so you can push it back down again, right? That's essentially what we're doing here with photosynthesis, right? You end up spending such a huge amount of resources and energy on the upstroke, right, of the pedal cycle as you, than you do on the, on the downstroke of it. So you achieve the objective. You do, in fact, go forward, right? Uh, you, you move from point A to point B but it takes a lot more energy on the upstroke than it does on the downstroke, it seems. So it's, it's kind of interesting like that. Does it work? Yes. Is there enough sugar out there, yes. right? Are plants fun? Yeah, plants function just fine, right? Um, which is a testament to how much of this stuff we can make through photosynthesis, okay? Those light reactions uh, are really putting out a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of energy, right? They're really capturing an enormous amount of sunlight energy out there, okay? So how much energy is coming in from the sun? A huge amount, a huge amount. Okay, and uh, each step along these pathways, as you recall, right, you don't get 100% energy con you know, conversion. You lose a lot of the energy along the way, right? So uh, a mere fraction of this energy that you're using right here actually makes it into this molecule of glucose. Most of the energy is just used towards getting the cycle going again, right? It's not, a, it's not a horribly efficient process at all. It's fairly interesting in that respect. But it works. There's enough to go around. It functions. We're all good, all right? So at every step along the way in this whole process, you can kind of see where the carbon is and where the carbon is going, even up with mass balance, right? So we have, here we have 30 plus six, 36 carbon, 
36 carbon, 36 carbon, 36 carbon, right? Uh, we have 30 left after we take the glucose out. So here's our 30 added to these six to get 36. So there's carbon balance here in this cycle. And we could count calories of energy and we have energy balance as well. The amount of energy going in equals the amount of energy coming out. The amount of energy here, right, is equal to the energy difference between this, okay, and this. Cool, that whole thermodynamic thing, right? Okay, this one. So to wrap up, to look at both of these cycles at the same time, right, to look at both of these light-dependent and light-independent reactions simultaneously, right, here's our thylakoids. Okay, sunlight hits thylakoid, water is split, right? The electron is retained, the oxygen is released, um, the hydrogen ions are retained as well, right? So we end up keeping the electrons and keeping the hydrogen ions, right? The electrons end up here, okay? Um, the hydrogen ions end up producing this after building them up in the thylakoid and letting them flow, letting them flow through that um, ATP synthase. The ATP and the NADPH are then handed over to the Calvin-Benson cycle where we combine the carbon dioxide with the RUBP to make a little bit of glucose and a lot of PGAL, okay? Um, the PGAL is converted back into RUBP and the cycle keeps going around again, okay? Making a lot of glucose. Eventually, something like you is going to eat this glucose, okay? And you're gonna split it apart, right? And if you have oxygen available to you, then you're gonna go ahead and give that to your mitochondria where you're gonna convert it into acetyl coenzyme A break it apart into NADP, uh, or into NADH and FADH2, send those electrons over to the electron transfer chain where, you, where you're gonna make another hydrogen ion gradient, okay? And make even more ATP out of it. So um, these electrons, you can follow the electrons, you can follow the carbon, you can follow the energy, all the way starting with energy coming out of the sun, right? And where all this kind of stuff goes through, all the way through photosynthesis into you, okay? Through your aerobic math, uh, aerobic, metabolism pathways and into what you respire out and what you do with that energy, your kinetic energy that you use to move, right? You should be able to follow that carbon, those electrons, that energy completely all the way through the cycle, which is what I said on day one, coming into the ecosystem as light and leaving it as heat, right? So we can take photosynthesis, we can stack it right on top of aerobic respiration and we just take the glucose which comes out of this and just plug it right into aerobic respiration and keep it and keep it flowing that energy right so if, we were using, if we were green ourselves and use photosynthesis we could just cut out the middleman you not, could not have to eat anything. yeah presumably you know that whole autotroph thing you know and just kind of you know go outside and i'm hungry i'm gonna go outside and face the sun for a half an hour and hey, cool right put the cafeteria out of business but uh, yeah, because, I mean, all the energy that you're going to do everything with is now right here, you know, and that's your limit on how much you can do is how much of this you bring in. So the limit of how much we can do as, you know, animals on Earth is related to how much of this there is out there, right, which is related to how much of this gets converted, right, into PGA, which is limited by how much of this can be made in the light reactions, which is based on how much of this comes in, right? So asteroid hits the Earth 65 million years ago, throws a bunch of crap into the atmosphere. There's not so much of this, certainly not enough to feed a, you know, 50-ton whatever herbivore out there, you know? Big herbivores fall over dead. What happens after that? Big carnivores fall over dead because there are no big herbivores to eat, you know? So um, cascading. Uh, trophic problems through the ecosystem, right? When the amount of this stuff coming in, this stuff being sunlight, is everything, right? Why are there so many more plants in the tropics? More sunlight? Yeah, sun is overhead all day long, every day long, right? Except for four o'clock when it pours, which just replenishes the amount of electrons, right, that the plants can use to, to strip apart to capture the sunlight energy. So the system is all just kind of unified in that kind of kind of everything is related kind of way makes you feel good about yourself part of a part of a larger whole right all integrated with the ecosystem and all that kind of stuff right or is that just me right right <laughs> next right
Next. All right. Thus ends photosynthesis. All right. I should ask if there are any questions before we go on to meiosis. Any, any last requests about photosynthesis? I kind of belabored those light reactions to death a little bit. I want to make sure you get them all, though, because there are a couple of things going on there at the same time that you want to be aware of. All right. Let me switch over quickly to meiosis here. This computer really doesn't do a lot of things quickly, actually, so give me a second. Oh, it has a mind of its own. It's probably the host of viruses that get used on these company machines. Oh, of course, not responding. Hey, there we go. I don't know. I don't know, right? I've looked at that up close. I've looked at it far away. I have no idea what that is. Right? We know who it is. Henry VIII. Henry VIII, absolutely. This is not a Western civilization class, but that's okay. We can start any good conversation about meiosis with, with Henry VIII. Right? Who was he? What did he do? What did he not do? Which is more important than what he did. Well, yeah, he did, but yeah, he was like he died sickly at nine or something like that, right? So he was a tutor, right? He was a king of England. Uh, he was the father of Queen Elizabeth, right? And Mary, Mary, right? Uh, Elizabeth, of course, the one who we all know and love. They make movies about her and all that kind of stuff, played by important, expensive actresses and things like that. Um, defeated the Spanish Armada, which is more weather-related than Elizabeth-related, but that's another story. All, all a fine, no, by anybody's estimate, a fine queen of England, okay? Um, the problem was she was not a fine king of England, right? She was a queen of England, right? The uh, king of England has one job. One job. Well, two. Keep the country together, right? His first job, have a son. Not just a kid, right? Make another king. Yeah, make another king, right? Make a son. Right? Preferably, you would go the Diana route and have an heir and a spare, right? Two kids. Just in case something bad happens to one, there's still another king to, to, to go on next. Okay? Um, so he has one job, and his one job is to have a son. Okay? And anytime you get these kind of images like this of, of kings of England, you can see just about everything in this image speaks to his uh, unprecedented virility. Right? Huge codpiece in the front of his uniform, right? Uh, sheathed daggers, right? All kind of dangling around the, the middle area of his person, right? And this other thing in his hand, which looks like a croissant, but nobody really knows what it is, right? So um, there, there's enough uh, kind of male-influenced images around this section of the body than you can ever possibly imagine, right? All kind of giving you evidence of his masculinity and his virility. In reality, his masculinity was, yeah, he's kind of catastrophe, actually, as evidenced by the fact that he didn't have any sons, right? So ultimately, he blamed his wives, didn't he? Yep. Right? How many? Six, Six of them. What were their fates? Dead, beheaded. No, divorced, divorced, which is important, died, right? Divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah, so it's divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived, right? And the first one was Catherine of Aragon, and she was not producing sons. So he divorced her, but he tried to divorce her, couldn't divorce her, right, because they were Catholic and the Pope wouldn't allow it. So he formed the Church of England, right, so he could get divorced, right? So he is the, the temporal head of the Church of England, and that has been something that has been handed down to royalty, is that all, all royalty is the temporal head of the Church of England, including Queen Elizabeth today, right? Queen the second, right. Uh, so uh, that's what the Church of England is, right? So Henry VIII could get divorced. Um, uh, so she was divorced. Anne Boleyn, you know, is, is Elizabeth's mother, right? And it didn't work out so well for her. She was beheaded at the, uh, on Tower Hill. Um, and then uh, the third wife died. Fourth one was divorced. Fifth one was beheaded again, right? Um, and then uh, the, the last one actually survived the reign of terror, right, of, of this man. He died before she did, okay? So... <laughs> Um, he did have a son, as you mentioned, right? But he was this kind of sickly, little, scrawny. He died of not being a 
good enough. Good enough. He, he wasn't killed or anything, but he was just so sickly and. Uh, yeah, he couldn't because he died, and then his son was like nine. Yeah, he, he was young. Five years and didn't do anything, and just didn't work out <laughs> right. So, um, uh, and then after after Elizabeth ultimately died, there were absolutely no kids because you know. Queen Elizabeth died childless, so that's when the James, you know, King James kind of came into it and it went from there. So, uh, all good things. So, um, all the success of Henry, the six wives of Henry VIII's problem, right, all these wives that Henry VIII kept having, was because you're not having sons. And ultimately, when you start looking at meiosis and how you make gametes, the ultimate irony is that the gender has absolutely nothing to do with the woman, right? It has everything to do with the man, right? So if you're not having, gentlemen, if you're not having the sex of kids that you want, it's entirely your fault, okay? There's nothing that your poor uh, woman who you're reproducing with has anything to do with it, right? Um, Kelly is making gametes. She's making eggs right now, right? Um, and since she is a woman, right, um, she has two X chromosomes, right? Yes, she does. That's what makes her a woman, right? Gentlemen, you have an X and a Y, okay? So when Kelly starts making these eggs, starts making all these gametes and all that kind of stuff, she's sorting out her genetic information. Oh, you don't have to be embarrassed. Everybody knows you are, right? Um, <laughs> uh, everybody in this room is making gametes as we speak, right? Um, uh, so when she's sorting out her genetic information, right, parceling out her genome, um, she has these 46 chromosomes. She has two sets of 23. One of her set of her 23 she got from her mom. The other set of 23 she got from her dad. Okay. Um, so with regard to this 23rd set, right, those sex characteristics, those sex chromosomes, she got an X from her mom and she got an X from her dad as well. That's why she is la femme, right? If she received a Y from her dad, then her name would not be Kelly, right? It would probably be John or... Clark, right, whatever, whatever it is, right? Um, <laughs> so there it is, right? If you had a Y chromosome, you would not be, you know, a woman. You would obviously be a man, uh, like the majority of this class, it seems, which is kind of strange. So, uh, so when you're making gametes, right, um, and you're sorting out and parceling out this genetic information, right, with regard to that 23rd set of chromosomes, Kelly, you only have X's to give. You cannot, you cannot provide a Y to the next generation. You look disgusted by that, right? Um, uh, us men, right, we're, we're all good, right? We can go either way. You know, we can, when we're making our sperm, here, I'll, I'll embarrass the rest of us for us, Kelly. When we're making our sperm, right, guys, we are making sperm, some of which has X chromosomes and some of which have Y, since we have both, okay? So if we're going to have a girl, right, it's going to get X from a woman and another X from us. If we're going to have a son, Right? We know the X of the son is going to come from the mother because the father must be the Y provider. Okay? So all guys in this room, your X chromosome came 100% and entirely from your mother and the Y came from the dad. Right? The rest of them, mm, you know, they're hybrids, uh, which we'll get into in just a bit. Okay? So men, blame yourselves for the gender of your children. All right. So this is your genome right here, okay? So um, different species will have different numbers of chromosomes. You have 46. That 46, that 46 chromosomes is arranged as two sets of 23. So you get, 20, you get a complete set of a genome, right? A complete set, a, a complete gene for every characteristic on your body, right? Um, from your mom, and you get a complete set from your dad. Sometimes those genes are redundant. Sometimes they are not. Okay, so your mom might have blue eyes, your dad might have brown eyes, right? When your parents go ahead and make their chromosomal set and their gametes, to which they combine to make you, right? They both they both have these genes for eye color. They might be in agreement, they might not be in agreement. We'll get into that when we talk about Mendelian characteristics and things like that. For now, what we just want to talk about is how you take your genome, your 46 chromosomes, how do you parcel them out, okay, to make gametes, to make eggs and sperm? How do you actually do it? Now, you can see each one of these chromosomes here. So here's chromosome one, here's set of chromosome two, set of chromosome three, here's chromosome four, here's chromosome five, right? You have two chromosome one, so maybe this came from mom, this came from your dad. Maybe this one came from your mom, this one came from your dad. Maybe this one came from your dad and this one came from your mom, right? Um, they're organized in these pairs, right? So you have two chromosome one, you have two chromosome twos, you have two chromosome threes. 
If you have two complete sets of a genome like this, you are referred to as diploid, D-I-P-L-O-I-D, okay? So you have a complete set of chromosomes of 23 from your mom and a complete set of chromosomes 23 from your dad. That's how you get your 46, okay? So because you have two of each chromosome, you, have, you, you are diploid. Now what you would want to do, your objective at the end of all this, right, is to make gametes that are haploid. You want to make gametes that only have one set of the chromosomal count because you're going to take your one set, right, and you're going to combine it with somebody else's single set, right, to regain that 46, that number 46, right? So um, what's important to remember when we talk about meiosis, okay, making gametes, making egg and sperm, is that from what we start with, we never actually make any more DNA, okay? We're not synthesizing new DNA strands at any part of this process. We're just taking what we start with and we're sorting it out, okay? So we're at no point do you synthesize new DNA. You end with the exact same amount of nucleotides than you started with, right? You've just sorted them out into multiple cells, okay? So it's a very important thing to keep in mind. Okay? When we start talking about the cell cycle and how you make one cell out of two in your left arm, then we'll synthesize more DNA. Okay? We're not talking about that today. All we're talking about is a sorting exercise, this one. Okay? So you can see these chromosomes right here. Here's, let's say this is chromosome number one. Okay? So here's one from your mom, here's one from your dad. Um, they are referred to as homologous chromosomes. Okay? The one from your mom and the one from your dad, we call that we call those homologous if they are the same chromosome, one from mom and one from dad, okay? Or chromosome two from mom or two from dad or homologs. Three from mom and three from dad are homologs. X from mom and Y from dad are homologs, okay? Uh, so here you have 23 sets of homologous chromosomes. They exist um, in this duplicated state right before meiosis. When I say duplicated, I'm talking about these individual sister chromatids, okay? So this right here that I'm pointing at right there is one complete set of that genome. This is the entire chromosome right here. It has, prior to meiosis, it has duplicated into another chromatid. So this chromatid right here is a clone of that chromatid right there, okay? And the same for this one over here, all right? So if we take these chromatids and separate them apart, Right? We really haven't lost any genetic information there. We just took two clones and separated them apart. Right? So what we start with okay, in meiosis are these duplicated chromosomes. What we're going to do eventually throughout the process of meiosis, we're going to split apart these duplicated chromosomes, but not before we do interesting and strange things to them. Okay? So this is what we're going to start with. 46 duplicated chromosomes that are paired up as homologs. Okay, so there are four chromatids here, there are four chromatids here, there are four chromatids here, on and on down the line. We good? Okay, and on each chromosome they exist as duplicated sets, right, where one chromatid is a clone of the other. Are we good? This is like the most important thing is what do we start with? Okay, so when we think about here's four chromatids, here are four chromatids, here are four chromatids, we're never going to make any more DNA at any point in the whole process. All we're going to do is take that and sort it out, okay, separate it out into four haploid cells. So we're going to start with one diploid cell of duplicated chromosomes. Diploid cell of duplicated <laughs> chromosomes. I don't usually tell you to write things down, right? So we're going to start with one cell that is diploid that contains duplicated chromosomes. What we're going to end with is four haploid cells that have unduplicated chromosomes. So once you know what we're starting with and what we have to end with, right, you know if you get the process right. If you start with what you start with and you don't end with what you're supposed to end with, you did something wrong, right? So we need to make sure we can follow from what we start with to what we end with. Okay. We good? 
Now, I just throw this in here to confuse you, okay, uh, to separate A's from B's ultimately and things like that, right? Um, we're not talking about the stuff that happens up here in your right arm or your left arm or, or on, on your head or whatever it is, right? We're not talking about cell division that happens asexually. We're not talking about mitosis. We're not talking about making more cells on your arm or something. That is really just a cloning process called mitosis. We'll talk about that later, right? We're not talking about making new cloned copies of cells. That is not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about making gametes, parceling out genetic information that you're ultimately going to combine with somebody else's genetic information, right? So after fertilization, right, you need to have 46 chromosomes in that new, in that new fertilized egg. Right? So you're going to have to take all of this and parcel it out into 23, and somebody else is going to do the same. And you're going to recombine it to reachieve your 46. Okay, so meiosis, that process of sorting out, not copying anything, just sorting out genetic information to make gametes. And that process that we go through in order to bring those gametes together is referred to as? Oh, good. I couldn't get anybody in my early class to actually say the word sex in class, right? So I was, really? Yeah, it was, it was weird. Maybe it was just early. I don't know. I couldn't get them to say fertilization, right? Uh, sex was, wasn't, even a, wasn't even a chance on that. All right. So meiosis, right? Um, the process of meiosis is far more complicated than mitosis, right? So if you can get meiosis down, mitosis is going to be a breeze, right? Um, there are two stages to it. Just like anything here, we can break it down into smaller individual segments. So there are two phases here to meiosis. Meiosis one, which is where the complex things happen, and meiosis two, where the less complex things happen, okay? All the interesting things that are going to confuse you, that I'm going to ask you a million questions about, happen in meiosis one. Meiosis two is really just a sorting and separating exercise. Strange things happen though in meiosis one. So spend, spend your, invest your energy on meiosis one to really understand what's going on here. That's where the strange things happen. And again, no duplicating DNA or anything like that. Okay, all we're doing is sorting this one diploid cell that is constructed of duplicated chromosomes into four haploid cells that have unduplicated chromosomes. That's really important to keep that in mind. So we start with one and we want to end with four. Good? So in meiosis one, we're going to go from one cell to two. Okay, in meiosis two, we're going to go from two cells to four. All right. The phases of meiosis are named similarly to the phases of mitosis, which we haven't talked about at all, I realize that. Starts with what we call prophase. The others are going to be metaphase, anaphase, and telophase. Okay, which you may, you may actually remember that from high school biology. I don't know, you know. Usually you do it by looking at onion cells and things like that under microscopes. P-M-A-T. Whatever acronym you need to, to use to memorize is fine with me, right? Prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, okay? Um, and prophase one, the one indicates that we're in meiosis phase one, right? Later on, we'll, be a, we'll talk about prophase two and things like that. A couple of interesting things happen. Um, duplicated chromosomes pair with their homologs, all right? So when we have these cells inside of a nucleus, they're not lined up like this. Okay, they're not organized in this kind of neat arranged sort of way. When you see these kinds of arrangement of a human, of a human genome, how do you get these things to line up like that? How do you get one over here to line up with this one and two to line up with that one to make a picture like this? You use Photoshop, right? And you kind of cut the images out and you move them so they're, the homologs are right next to each other. Okay, your cell needs to do this without using Photoshop, okay, or GIMP, the open source equivalent. Okay, so um, if you are, if you, think about yourself as a chromosome, if you are this one chromosome right here, there are 45 other chromosomes out there which could be your homolog. Only one is correct, right? You need to find it, okay, and saddle up right next to it, just like that, okay? Chromosome number two, you need to do the same thing. Chromosomes number three, you need to find the other chromosome number three that's out there. Chromosome number four, and down the line, right? Um, 
seems like a problem. It sounds like it could occasionally go wrong, doesn't it? Yeah. It occasionally goes wrong, right? And bad things happen as a result of it, which we'll get into when we talk about chromosomal problems a little later on, okay? Okay, so the duplicated chromosomes pair up with their homolog. They find their homolog and they pair up and they get right up next to it, okay? Then the homologous chromosomes will swap tips. They will swap segments, right? Part of one of them will move on to the other chromosome, and that same part on the other chromosome will move over to the, to the other, right? So if you think about your own chromosomes, your homolog homologous chromosomes, your own chromosome number one, for example, you got one of those from your mom and one of those from your dad, right? Um, when you recombine those in prophase one, that some of those chromatids will be partially that which came from your mother and a little tip of it which came from your dad, and likewise on the other. Okay, so you'll get new chromosomal slash chromatid combinations that are sort of hybrids between what your mom provided you and what your dad provided you, right? Um, have I ever used you on a public display up here, Kelly? Yeah. Okay, come on up, come on up. Um, Patrick, you're, you're, you're due. Come on up. Ah, you're fine. Quit, quit, quit whining. Right? All right, uh, back to back, you two. Ooh, this is good, you're about the same size, too. It doesn't matter either way. So here is chromosome number one in every one of your cells, right? Your chromosome number one looks exactly like Kelly. Chromosome number one from your dad looks exactly like Patrick, right? It's easy to tell which one came from mom and which one came from dad because one is wearing blue and one is wearing pink. Could it be any more textbook, right? <laughs> it's a stereotype blatantly there. All right, so do any of you have shoulder problems? All right, hands up over your heads, right? It's a, it's a stick up, both of you. Okay, so these are now dupli here's duplicated chromosome one from your dad, duplicated chromosome number one from your mom, okay? So they've sidled up next to each other. They found their homolog. What we're now gonna do, we're gonna take my hacksaw, right? We're gonna cut your arm off right there. We're gonna take it off. We're gonna get a hacksaw, cut Kelly's forearm off. We're gonna take Kelly's forearm and we're going to stick it onto yours. We're going to take your forearm off and we're going to stick it onto Kelly's arm. So now this part of this duplicated chromosome, this chromatid is from your dad up to here and from your mom from here on up. Likewise, it's from your mom up to here and from your dad here on up. And the exact same thing is going to happen on the other side as well. We could cut Patrick off at the knee and put it on Kelly's lower leg and cut Kelly off at the knee and put it on Patrick's lower leg. Yeah, you might get a little bit of a lean after that, right? But uh, the effect would be the same, right? So when we do that, we're making new combinations of chromatids that have never existed before in nature, right? That are hybrids of what your parents gave you. A hand for our chromosomes. Yay. Good job, chromosomes. The process is called crossing over, right? You end up with new hybridized chromatids, okay? That have never existed before in nature. The process is called crossing over. It happens randomly along the length of those chromosomes. So even though I, I lopped you guys off the knee and at the elbow, it'll happen any place along that length, completely randomly, right? So how many different possible combinations are there along the chromatid? Gazillions, gazillions, right? It's gonna split it hopefully at genes, right? At gene boundaries, but there are a lot of combinations there. That's not the only thing we're gonna do to these poor chromosomes. We're gonna jumble them up even further. So that's homolog swap segments, right? That's what we just did with Patrick and Kelly up here in the front. And the chromosomes become attached to a spindle. Eventually we're gonna to have to do some separating, right? So we need to kind of attach them to some wires down which they can migrate, okay? So this spindle framework that we're ultimately gonna to use to move these chromosomes around, right, um, are made of microtubules, which is made of, y'all told me on the exam, tube, Tubules made of tubulin, tubulin, okay? Good, good. All right. I'm having a pointer, I think my battery's dying actually. Oh, maybe it's just the slide. Uh, too much for one man to handle. All right, here we go. Okay. Is that right? Okay. Uh, this is a conspiracy. Vast conspiracy. Okay. So here we have, just like Kelly and Patrick, right? Here we have chromosome number one. 
from your dad and chromosome number one that you got from your mom, right? So this is happening, I'm sorry to have to say this, within your ovaries and within your testes, okay? Um, and they have sidled up next to each other. They are now swapping tips with each other, okay? So we, what you end up with is four chromatids. Here's this chromatid. Here's that chromatid. Here's that chromatid and that chromatid. These were clones of each other. Remember that? Mm -hmm. They're no longer clones of each other, okay? They're, you have four unique chromatids for each one of these chromosomes now, right? So now you have one, two, three, four completely unique chromatids, okay? Which is important. The second phase is going to be metaphase one, okay? So we crossed over in metaphase one. Now we're gonna do something else that's gonna jumble things up, or in prophase one. Now we're gonna do something else to jumble things up in metaphase one. So what's gonna happen at metaphase one? These, um, they're still associated with each other. They're still paired up with their homologs, right? Um, they're gonna line up at what we call a metaphase plate. Okay, so homologous pairs line up at metaphase plate. So you see these little, it looks like little 55 gallon drums up here, all right? Um, these are ultimately going to represent the poles uh, to which these things are gonna be migrated toward, which are gonna represent where the new cells are gonna form, right? So we take this one cell and we split it into two. This is going to be a cell and this is going to be the cell. So this metaphase plate is gonna form right there and that's essentially gonna represent where those cells are gonna split, okay, and go from one to two. So everything to the south, okay, of this metaphase plate is going to be in a cell, and everything to the north of this metaphase plate is going to be in a cell, all right? So this little thing back here looks like a couple of trash cans. Uh, that is ultimately what's going to be stabilizing those spindle fibers and things like that, okay? Um, there's a lot of, these are not just... Uh, aggression lines or whatever you call these things up here, right, in, in cartoons. These are actually other spindle fibers which are branching off holding this entire structure in place, okay? I need to hold these things in place for a very good reason, okay? Uh, there's how many of you out there? 15, 20? I'm going to throw a rope to each one of you, okay, and I'm going to hold on to all of them, okay? Now, pull. Do you come to me or do I go to you? I go to you. There's a mass problem, isn't there, right? Got a ton pulling this way. You got about 195 194 pounds, uh, pulling, it, pulling in this direction, because I lost a pound this weekend, right? Um, so we need to anchor these things down, right? So that's what these little trash can things are doing. They're providing an anchor spot. So when these things start migrating on this fiber, the chromosomes go to the poles as opposed to the poles getting pulled into the middle, because that wouldn't necessarily achieve anything that we wanted, okay? So what happens here, you can see how these things are lined up. Let's presume for a moment here that the dark blue ones came from dad and the light blue ones ultimately came from your mother. Okay, so that's where your chromosomes are. On this one, the dark blue one is on the top, right? On this one down here, most of the dark blue one is actually on the bottom, okay? When these homologous pairs line up at this metaphase plate, and this is, if, if there are 10 st statements that I can make that are the 10 most important statements in biology 101, this is going to be one of those top 10, just so you know. The way that this homologous set lines up on that metaphase plate which one is on top and which one is on bottom is independent of how chromosome number two homologous pair lines up on that metaphase plate. And that's independent of how chromosome set three lines up on that metaphase plate. So here you can see the dark blue one is on the top. The dark blue one over here is on the bottom. How this one organizes where the light blue and dark blue one is is independent of how this one organizes, okay? So because this method of assortment is independent between homologous chromosomal pairs, we call this independent assortment. Ta-da! So here we have a cell, right? It looks like it has six chromosomes, but it's diploid. It has three, pair, three sets of two, right? Or two sets of three, I should say, right? So here's a genome from your mom. Here's a genome from your dad, okay? And this is in every cell in your entire body, including these ones you're making sperm and egg out of, okay? So this is one possible combination, right? Let's say during independent assortment, all of them from the mother stay on the top and all of them from your dad stay on the bottom. That's one way it can work, right? Let's say we have another possibility where the one from your dad is on the top, but two and three from mom are on the top and the opposite is gonna be on the bottom. This is another equiprobable way that this can happen. Equiprobable because how this one assorts is independent of how this one assorts, which is independent of how this one assorts.
Okay? So you consider how many different ways can chromosome 1 work out, right? It can either be like this, or it can be the opposite, like that, okay? So for every chromosomal pair, there are two possibilities. Every time you flip a coin, how many possibilities of an outcome are there? Two. Two, heads or tails, right? So let's say that I had one coin toss. How many possibilities do I have? Let's say I have two coin tosses. You have four possibilities, right? You can do head-head, head-tail, tail-head, or tail-tail. Let's say that I have three coin tosses. How many possibilities can I have? Eight. Eight. Two times two times two. Let's say that I had four coin tosses. Sixteen. Sixteen. So it's not, it's not addition, right? It's not additive. It's a power function, right? It's two to the n where n is the number of coin tosses you have. In the human condition, how many coin tosses do you have? 23. 23. Anybody got a calculator? 2 to the 23rd. It's approximately, it's a little over 8 million. Okay? So just using independent assortment alone, how many different gametes can you make? Just over 8 million. Just over 8 million. <laughs> right? This is ignoring crossing over. All right, so it's not just independent assortment randomizing and jumbling these chromosomes like coin tosses, right? You cross them over, randomize those chromatids, and then you randomize the chromosomes that are carrying the chromatids on top of it, right? So is that enough randomness for you? Yeah. There's a third aspect of randomness that's going to happen a little bit later on, right? But these are the big two, right? The first one happens in prophase one, crossing over. The second one happens in metaphase one, when these line up the metaphase plate, which is on the top, which is on the bottom. It's called independent assortment. So here are eight possibilities, okay? If we have three homologous pairs, right, these are our eight possibilities. Um, and they're all equal probable. It could end up like this, in which case you'll get that set and that set on the top and the bottom. It can end up like this, in which case you'll get this set and this set. It can end up like this, in which case you'll get this set and that set. Or it can end up like this in which case you'll get that set and that set. So if you have three homologous pairs, you can end up with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight combinations, all of them different from each other. So find two of these sets that are the same. You cannot do it, right? They're all, all different from each other. If we added a fourth set of homologous chromosomes up here, we just run out of board space, and it would ramp up very, very quickly to a very, very high number. So independent assortment. It's nothing more than the accidents of how these things line up at metaphase plates. Okay, that's the hard part, right? From here on, man, it's coasting downhill. Once we line up at the metaphase plate, it gets kind of easy. Anaphase, one, chromosomes segregate, okay? And the sister chromatids, however, remain attached. So we take these homologous pairs that we're making here, and we actually do pull them apart. Uh, off of their, off of the axis, off that metaphase plate using those spindle fibers, right? So here you see uh, some of these moving up towards one pole and, and the other set of them moving down towards the other after we've lined them up on the metaphase plate. So you can see chromosome two here, looks like this is from dad and this is from mom. Doesn't look like any crossing over happened right here, right? Um, some crossing over did happen here, right? So there it is, right? New variation, woohoo. Then in telophase one, we actually take those separated chromosomes and we go ahead and make new cells out of them. So we've gone from one to two. So we've gone from one diploid cell, right, with 46 duplicated chromosomes to two in the process of becoming haploid cells, right, with 23 structural chromosomes containing chromatids that are crossed over, so no longer identical. So they look like 23 duplicated chromosomes, but the chromatids are all crossed over. So they are not duplicated, but they structurally will look like they are. Okay. Like these. They look like they should be what we call duplicated chromosomes, but they're structurally different from each other now because this one has been crossed over. So now all we have to do in meiosis two is take the chromatids from each one of them and separate, which is not hard to do. So prophase two, now we're in meiosis phase two, prophase two, we go ahead, we line these 
uh, we, we reattach our, my, 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 our meiotic spindle right, to those central portions of those uh, now non-duplicated because they're hybridized chromatids. Right? We line those up at the metaphase plate. Anybody want to guess what happens in anaphase 2? Uh, we separate, we separate right, to the opposite poles. And what we end up with? is four <laughs> haploid gametes, okay? So at no point in this entire process did we ever add to the amount of DNA that we have. We never took away from the amount of DNA. All we did was sort it out, okay? We took it, we paired up the homologous chromosomes, we crossed them over, we independently assorted them, then we pulled them apart. Then we took those chromatids. See, the first part, meiosis one, is about separating chromosomes, right, that look duplicated but are really just crossed over. Meiosis two is about separating chromatids, okay? And we end up with this. Here's one, here's another, here's another, here's another, and they're all four different from each other. So just because she responds to it so well. So when Kelly is making eggs, right, um, when she goes from this one to four process, she's not making four of the same egg. She's making four different eggs every time. She's never making the same egg twice. Much like we, gentlemen, are never making the same sperm twice. Even though we'll make a couple billion during the course of our lives, None of those two are ever going to be the same, ever. You would have to get crossing over and independent assortment to happen the same way twice, which is absolutely never going to happen. I mean, just independent assortment alone gives you 8 million possibilities. Even if you get the independent assortment the same, you're going to have crossed over in different places on different chromosomes. It's just never going to happen. It's up with the possibility up there with one over the number of stars in the universe. It's, it's that, kind of, that kind of thing, right? It's just not going to happen. So what you're going to then do, right, after you get a job and graduate in college, blah, 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 you know my spiel, you're going to possibly, if you want to be a Darwinian success, you're going to take one of these gametes and you're going to fuse it with somebody else's gamete that is, has the same chromosomal count. That's where, since each one of these has 23 chromosomes, is going to go back up to being 46, and there's going to be two copies of each chromosome, which we call, I was going to say diploid, sex being the process. All right, so just for eye candy's sake, here's prophase, anaphase, metaphase, and telophase, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, and telophase one, showing you all of the things that happen in that very first, uh, that first phase of meiosis, and of course, followed by meiosis two, all the stuff that follows afterwards. So we never do anything. We never add genetic information. We never make new chromosomes. None of that. All we're doing is taking what we start with and sorting it out. Now, the third way that you randomize and add variation to the population is down here. Okay. Who, Patrick, are you going to donate your sperm to, right? Who is going to take it, fertilize it, and produce a child? Do you know? So it's effectively random yeah. at this point, right? You have no idea who the other contrib contributor of a, of a half of a genome is. It's effectively random. You're not mating randomly, right? You, you put some thought into this stuff, right? Some of us put more thought into it than others. I probably shouldn't <laughs> say that, right? But we put thought into these, these things. You want this person to be, you know, have whatever attractive, you, you want them to have an immune system which is very different from your own, right? Um, which goes a long way towards uh, what we see as attractiveness, okay, is you, what, what you're essentially smelling is somebody's immune system, right? Um, and it, it kind of explains the whole thing about why you don't find your siblings attractive and things like that. Um, they have a very similar immune system to yourself. They both got it from the parents. Um, if you want to increase the amount of things in the, in the, out there that are trying to get into you, viruses, bacteria, you would want a very diverse immune system. Um, and for that reason, incest would be a bad idea. Right, because you would be essentially not getting a very diverse immune system for that. Um, the people who have really different immune systems from yours, right, that would be good. That would be good, right? So we think that goes a long way towards these feelings of attractiveness that we find people in, right? Um, wow, your, your immune system is really different from, that's a pickup line for you there, right? Go out, uh, man, your immune system, that's, that's pretty different than mine. Or, hmm, you know, your immune system is just too similar to mine, it's just not going to work out. It's not you, it's me, right? Or whatever it is, however you want to end that. So um, this process of fertilization, right, that happens uh, later on in your life, that, that's where you 
regain that diploid condition. That's where you know, these cells go back up to the 46 diploid count, right? Um, and then mitosis takes over from here, and you just make more and more clones of that, resulting in a big 2 trillion celled multicellular uh, individual. All right, so there are three things that are contributing to variation in the next generation, right? Why is the next generation going to look nothing like us? Why are they going to be more genetically diverse than we are, right? You have crossing over happening, right, which is creating new chromatids that have never existed before in nature. You have independent assortment, which is producing new combinations of chromosomes, new combinations of chromosomes that have never existed before in nature. Most of chromosome one from your dad and most of chromosome two from your mom have never existed in the same cell before in your life, okay? But they do now, okay, in one of those gametes. Um, and then our third thing, the random combination of gametes at fertilization, okay? So it's two orders of randomness. It's which one of all of these sperm and eggs that you're making are gonna be the one that fuses, right? And this unpredictable individual who's out there somewhere who you're presumably gonna reproduce with is effectively random as well at this point in your lives, probably. Not always. Okay. So these three things together. What are your kids going to look like? What genes are they going to have? You just don't know, right? Darwin's variation wins in the end. Meiosis. What do you think? Give the chapter a read. Right? Um, get all the sorting out straight in your head. We'll go through um, some kind of cute little examples of this in the lab on Wednesday. Okay, until then, um, I will see you later. I'm going to call out a couple of names if you're around. I want to talk to you for a second.